Shall we pray together? Our Father, we are so grateful for the truths, truths we have sung this morning in this last song in particular, to know that we are yours through faith in Christ, and nothing can change that. Uh, we know your commitment to us uh, is faithful to the end. And though we are unfaithful, sadly, we don't want to be, but often we are, you always are faithful. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you afresh right now, and we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to work among us, to continue the good work of holding us fast through the, the life-transforming power of your word as we see more clearly who you are and what it means to be your children. So we commit our time now to you and pray for your blessing on this time, for good things to be accomplished by your grace, through your spirit, through the instruction of your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be with you here at this church. Jody and I love your church. We just do. It's too far to come here from Louisville, Kentucky, though. I'm just, you know, just a bit of a stretch for a Sunday morning to make it here. But uh, nonetheless, we, uh, we love coming here. And thank you, Pastor Rod, for your kindness to have me down. And, and Doug, in particular, has done so much work in prep- preparation for this. Doug Link, thank you for that. Doug and Ben and Beth as well, and just uh, the so many of you, you've expressed your kindness to us in so many ways, and we're very grateful. Well, this morning I have the privilege of uh, unpacking what I think of as a, um, a snapshot from Ephesians chapter 1 of the doctrine of the Trinity, and it is glorious. It's a stunning picture of who God is as the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, from uh, this one brief portion of Scripture. And, uh, you know, it it raises the question in my mind for all of us here. The question is this that I have on the introduction to the outline. Have you learned to read your Bibles through Trinitarian lenses? I mean, sort of like glasses you put on the front of your face that help you see what's there. Do you see the doctrine of the Trinity as you're reading through? Uh, the Gospels, as you're reading through Paul's epistles, as you're reading through really everything in the New Testament, uh, you realize the Trinity is far more present in the text of Scripture than most of us are aware. And I think it's because we haven't gotten the right pair of glasses yet, right? So make sure you get a pair of those before you leave today. You need a pair of Trinitarian glasses where you observe the distinctiveness of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as Paul, Peter, John, different authors expound those. And I I just remember years ago, the Lord helped me see what I'm explaining to you now by noticing in this passage, this was the one that brought it all to, to light for me, as I noticed in this passage, pronouns, divine pronouns in Ephesians 1 that refer not to the one triune God, the one God who is over all, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, but divine pronouns that refer to one or another Trinitarian person, the he, him, his refers to the Father or to the Son or to the Spirit in very particular ways. And I began, I asked the question, is this true elsewhere in the New Testament? It was like a revelation to me. I hadn't seen this before. And sure enough, it is all over the place. I mean, I've come to see that the vast majority, I mean, probably in the 90% range, the vast majority of, of divine pronouns in the New Testament are pronouns of one or another of the Trinitarian persons. So you just realize how the authors of the Bible thought in very specific ways about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and yet in very uniform ways in terms of how they relate to one another, what their roles are as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we'll see a bit of that here in Ephesians chapter 1. So, uh, really the sermon is, is pretty simple in this way, that I want to start with in verses 1 and 2, uh, developing what I call the contours of the doctrine of the Trinity. There's a sense in which we see some insight just in the opening verses of Ephesians 1 that give, a, give us a sense of the framework, the contours, the basic structure of the doctrine of the Trinity that we'll see together. And then following that, in verses 3 to 14, we'll track the specific roles of the Father, Son, and the Spirit as they're discussed by the Apostle Paul. What we learn about the Father, what we learn about the Son, what we learn about the Spirit, and then move to application of that in our lives. Okay, well, let's begin then in verses 1 and 2, the contours 
of the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me read again verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two themes here in these opening verses of the Trinity that really present what amount to what you might think of as two pillars that uphold this giant block doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, think of it as massive, weighty doctrine that has to be upheld by two pillars, and those two pillars are here in this text. The first pillar you see in verse 1, where Paul says, notice, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Not by the will of Christ, but by the will of God. And if you think he means there the will of the one triune God, that's a possibility, but I don't think so. I mean, look, look at verse 2. Blessed, uh, gr- grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, one thing you find as you read through the, the New Testament is that the vast majority of the usages of God, the Greek word theos, as they appear in the New Testament, are references to God the Father. That is, to the specific person of the Trinity who is the Father of the Son, the the eternal Father who is God the Father. And I think this is in all likelihood the case at this point. So Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God the Father, not by the will of Christ. So he's an apostle of Christ, representing Christ, sharing the message of Christ in, in all that he does, magnifying Christ because the, the Father has willed this to be the case. Do you see it? The Father is the one who stands behind this. So, what you see here then is Paul is distinguishing the Father from the Son. There is a distinction between them. So, Ephesians 1, verse 1, helps us see the distinction theme. That's the first pillar of the doctrine of the Trinity that upholds that doctrine is the distinction theme. The Father is the Father, not the Son. The Son is the Son, not the Spirit. So the names Father, Son, and Spirit, now listen carefully, are not like three names you could say for me, right? I'm Bruce, I'm Mr. Ware, I'm Jody's husband. I mean, those three names are all names of me. So anything you say about Bruce, you would also say about Mr. Ware. Anything you'd say about Mr. Ware, you'd also say about Jody's husband because Bruce is Mr. Ware. Mr. Ware is Jody's husband, right? Well, that's not the case with the the names Father, Son, and Spirit. You say something about the Father that you do not and cannot say of the Son. You say something of the Son you do not and cannot say of the Spirit. They are distinct persons, distinct personal expressions of the one God. There is one God. These are not distinct gods, but distinct personal expressions of the one God. So Father, Son, and Spirit then, rightly understood in Trinitarian uh, monotheism, which is what we believe as Christians. We're not Unitarian monotheists like Jews, like Muslims. They are Unitarian monotheism, one God, one person. Nor are we tritheists, you know, polytheists as Hindus. And many, many, many religions of the world would believe in a number of gods. Well, we're not that either. As Christians, we believe in one God who is three. And the three means distinct three persons, each of whom presents fully the one true God and yet three distinct expressions of the one God. So, Father, Son, and Spirit then distinct from each other. But then you move on to verse 2, and you see the other pillar for the Trinity. Notice Paul says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word and in this verse uh, is astonishingly powerful, right? Right? Now, just think about it. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the word and there do? Well, it does two things, actually. One is it continues to indicate the distinction between God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two. We're talking about two, not one person. So it does that. Distinction continues. But more importantly, what the the word and does here is equate right? Who can give grace and peace? 
Can parents do that for their kids? Oh, don't you wish you could, right? Who can give grace and peace? Only God can do this. So grace and peace to you from God our Father. (gasps) Gasp! And the Lord Jesus Christ. What? He can give grace and peace? Yes. Well, He must be equal to God the Father then. Yes, that's the idea. He is equally God along with the Father. So one God who can give grace and peace, and that one God is both Father and Son. They're distinct from each other, but they are the same God in distinct personal expressions of that one undivided divine nature. So indeed, one God who is three, and the threeness of God, and the oneness of God. So maybe I didn't give you the word to fill in the blank there, did I? So equality or identity. Would be, either one of those words would work for that, uh, that, that name of that theme, the equality theme. The Father and the Son are equal because they're equally the one God. Or identity. I like the word identity for this reason. That the word equality is true, but it isn't as specific as you need to be in talking about the way in which the Father and Son are equal. Okay, so just hang in there with me for a moment. I want you to see this. This is important. Uh, You and I are equal because each of us is human, right? So you're a human being, I'm a human being, so we're equally human. That means we have the same kind of nature. You have a human nature, I have a human nature. Two dogs are equal because they have a canine nature, right? So we realize, yes, there there is in, in the natural world abundant examples of equality of the same kind, right? As, as we are. But, you know, your nature is distinct from my nature. If something happens to Jody and me on the way home, God forbid, but if something did, you continue, right? Your nature continues. So our natures are distinct from each other, even though they are the same kind of nature. Now, this is not the way it is with the Trinity. The, the, the equality of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is an equality, listening, an equality of identity, where the Father possesses the identically same nature as the nature the Son possesses. The Son possesses the identically same nature as the nature the Spirit possesses. So indeed, the nature of the Father is the nature of the Son. The nature of the Son is the nature of the Spirit. Do you see it? So one nature, one God. One God expressed distinctly through three distinct personal expressions of the one God. Now, one, one more clarification needed. What, is, what does it mean to say that the Father, Son, and Spirit all possess fully the one undivided divine nature? What is the nature? Well, the nature is, as it were, the collection of all of the essential attributes of God. All of the attributes of God, essential for God to be God, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His holiness, His righteousness, His, His, uh, uh, His power. I mean, just everything that you would say about God's essential nature comprise, um, well, essential attributes uh, comprise the nature of God. So that one nature, all the essential attributes of God, is possessed fully by the Father, fully by the Son, fully by the Spirit. So I remember... Those of you who have been in the parenting conference know that I, talk, I, I talked about these doctrines of the faith with my girl. <coughs> I'm so sorry. With my girls as they were growing up, and we came to the doctrine of the Trinity. Oh my goodness, I wanted so badly to have some kind of an illustration, an analogy for the Trinity that worked. I mean, I knew of many of them, but they're good analogies of one heresy or another. You know, they're not good analogies of the Trinity. They break down in very significant ways. Water, H2O, is, you know, solid, liquid, and vapor. Well, the problem is you don't have the same H2O molecules who are simultaneously all three. Yes, there's triple point. I know that. But, it's you know, it's not the same H2O molecule. So that doesn't work. It, It ends up being really a great example of modalism, right? Modalism that... God is first the Father, secondly the Son, third He becomes the Spirit, right? So in succession. But no, the Trinity argues that the Father, Son, and Spirit are simultaneously, eternally the one God. So I prayed about this. I said, Lord, if there is something uh, that could help me explain this to my girls, please help me know this. Well, 
A few nights later, in the middle of the night, I woke up like 3 a.m. with this idea in my mind, got up and wrote it down because I knew I would forget it otherwise, and, uh, and I've used it ever since. I think the Lord gave me this illustration, and if so, He gets all the glory. If somehow it doesn't work and I made this up, it's my fault. But, but here, here's how I think it, it, uh, it works. So imagine a whiteboard behind me. And on, the, on that board, you would take a blue marker and draw one large blue circle. So you have on the board one circle that is comprised by one line that, that shapes that circle. Now you take next a red marker and you overlap the blue exactly Exactly. So you have on the board one circle, but it's encompassed by two different lines. The red line is not the blue line. The blue line is not the red line, but the red circle is the blue circle. The blue circle is the red circle. You see it? And then you take one more marker, say a green, overlap exactly the, the, the red and the blue that's there. So you have on the board then one circle, the red circle, the blue circle, the green circle are the identically same circle, but the red line is a distinct expression of that circle. The blue line is a distinct expression of that circle. The green line is a distinct expression of that circle. So this, this is how it is with the Trinity. You have one nature, and yet three persons uh, possess that one undivided fully. They possess fully that one undivided divine nature uh, so that the Father, being fully God, is a distinct expression of that one nature. The Son is a distinct expression of that one nature. The Spirit, a distinct expression. The difference between the geometrical circle and God is these are distinct personal expressions, right? These are persons that express who that nature is. That's one, one of the limitations of this il- illustration, but I do think it helps on that. Okay, so, and we see this in John 1.1. That is these two themes, these two pillars, right? The distinction theme, the equality theme, identity. You see them in John 1.1. Now listen, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Which theme? Which pillar? Distinction. One is with the other. The two are distinct from each other. And the Word was God. Equality. You see it? So, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? The opening verse of John's gospel gives us this contour of the Trinity where we realize to understand the the triune relations of Father, Son, and Spirit, we have to understand distinction. Father's Father, not Son, and so on. But we also have to understand that each of them is the same one God, not three gods, one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, let's move on now to verses 3 to 14. And here we will take a look at the ways in which the Father, Son, and Spirit each is uh, magnified uh, through, this, uh, through these verses together. And we begin with the Father, because really the passage begins with the Father uh, in verse 3. Uh, and I, I would argue, as the outline says here, that when we look at these passages on the Father, it's very clear the Father is what you might think of as the grand architect of our salvation. He's the wise designer. He's the one who planned and purposed and willed our salvation to take place, all of it to take place through the Son, administered to us by the Spirit. That's in this text. We'll see it. But nonetheless, the Father stands behind it as the grand architect of our salvation. So look at how Paul begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, Paul could have, if he wasn't thinking in such clear Trinitarian ways... He could have said something true that would have been much simpler than this. He could have said, blessed be God for all the blessings that He brings to us. I mean, honestly, if that's, if that's what he wrote, nobody would have, you know, grimaced, uh, you know, had, had any concern about that. That's true. Blessed be God who brings all His blessings to us. True enough, but not specific enough for the Apostle Paul. So rather than blessed be God, it's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, I'll come back to that, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
in Christ. So indeed, the Father designs all of the blessings. He's the one who plans and purposes everything that we receive in this life and in the life to come, all of which blessings are accomplished through the work of His Son in Christ. So blessings designed by the Father, accomplished by the work of His Son. So the in Christ indicates none of the blessings of the Father come to us any other way. They all and only come through what Christ has done. And yet he has this interesting little phrase in the middle there of he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So here, some people have thought this relates to spiritual blessings the Father has designed for us, distinguished from physical blessings, like food, like health, you know, different ways in which God can help us out physically. But that really doesn't matter because it's the spiritual blessings that matter most. Here's the problem with that view, or one of the problems with that view, is it really sounds more like Platonism than it does like biblical theology, right? I mean, there is in the Platonic understanding in the first century, the, the Greek understanding in the first century, this division between spiritual and physical, so that we really want to escape the physical and enter the spiritual because that's where you know, perfection is, and that's where true reality is. And, and the physical really is a, defor- is a deforming aspect of, of reality. But that is not the view of the Bible. God created what? The heavens and the earth, right? He made this physical world. Isn't it interesting that the very first request that comes in the Lord's Prayer that begins with our Father, right? Don't miss it. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, physical, physical. So I do not think this is spiritual as opposed to physical. Here's what I think it's getting at, is these are blessings that are mediated to us, mediated to us through the Spirit. So designed by the Father, accomplished by the work of the Son, they're all in Christ, as Paul says at the end of of verse 3. But then they are blessings, all of which come to us through the Spirit as He unites us to Christ, which is exactly what Paul will talk about at the end of this section in verses 13 and 14. We'll come to that in just a bit. So, indeed, the Father is the architect. Let me just show you some other places where we see this is so clear and true. Notice that the notion of the Father willing, willing, is mentioned four times in this passage. In verses 1, 5, 9, and 11. 1, 5, 9, and 11, the Father wills. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of His will. So you see, the Father willed, oh, my goodness, isn't this incredible? So the Father is the one who elected us in Christ. He chose us in Christ. Uh, by the way, do you notice the pronoun there? Who is the he who chooses us in him? Father chooses us in Christ, right? Pay attention to pronouns, right? So he, the Father chooses us in Christ. But then in verse 5, it, you know, so in love he predestined, the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So it's through Christ that we are brought into the family of God um, according to the kind intention of His, the Father's will. Isn't that amazing? And then verse, verse 9, they have to back up in the NASB. You can see that the sentence actually begins. You know, by the way, verses 3 to 14 is all one sentence in Greek. It gets divided up for us by, by the translators. But it's just one long string-on sentence. Don't write this way, uh, anybody else, you know. But uh, this is how Paul wrote. <clears throat> so ver- verse uh, 9 actually begins for us at the end of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, he, now I'm going to argue this is the Father, he, the Father, made known to us the mystery of his, the Father's will, there it is, will, according to his kind intention, which he, the Father, purposed, in him. There's the telltale sign where you realize, ah, the previous he's and him's and his's have to be the Father because it ends with, in him, obviously the Son, right? So he wills, he, he intends, he purposes. 
So this is, I mean, these are all words that indicate the Father is the one who thought this up. The Father is the one who planned this, who purposed it, who, who brought the design into place. And then it's all fulfilled by the work of the Son. So indeed, the Father wills it. The last use of will is in verse 11. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose. Now, obviously, in light of what's just been said about the purpose of the Father in verses 9, restated in verse 10, <clears throat> this has got to be the, the, the purpose of the Father. There's just no other reasonable way to take this. So we've, been, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His, the Father's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His the Father's will. So there it is again. So you just realize, boy, the Father is the one then who plans, purposes, uh, orchestrates, uh, uh, draws the architectural drawing of all of the work that the Son does, mediated to us by the Spirit. So our salvation comes by the design of the Father. Now, let's move on to the Son. Capital letter B, the glorious accomplishment of salvation, though, is through the Son. Now, that's hinted at in verse 3, as we already talked about, right? Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That includes all of our salvation, right? Uh, In the heavenly places, which He brought to us in Christ, in Him, in Christ. So, indeed, it's implied there in verse 3. But the explicit statement that Paul gives to us of the work of Christ that brings us our salvation, the glorious accomplishment of that, is in verses 7 and 8. Seven in particular. So, we read at the end of verse 6. <clears throat> so sorry. I've been talking too much, haven't I, this weekend? To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Do you see Beloved there? So this is a reference to Christ, in His beloved Son, in Him, verse 7. So who's the Him referred to here? The Son. In Him, the Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His, I would argue that's the Father's grace. Because the Father stands behind everything that the Son does. But it's very clear the Son, the highlight here for the Apostle Paul, is the atoning work of Christ, His redeeming us through His shed blood on the cross. Now, there is much more to the atonement in other passages in Paul and in Peter and in John and other places in the, in the New Testament. There's more than this. And so Paul could have said much more, but he's focusing here on kind of the center of the cross itself in which he says we have redemption, redemption through his blood. So redemption is this rich word in the New Testament that refers to purchasing us from the marketplace, from the slave market of sin and uh, judgment and death. So here we are captive to sin, deserving condemnation because our sin brings us that condemnation. And we can't get rid of our sin. So we stand before God as sinners deserving His judgment. So what does God do? He sends His Son to pay the penalty that releases us from the bondage of our guilt and forgives us of our sin. So you see why he, he brings together redemption in His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see how those go together? Redemption is the basis for forgiveness. God cannot just willy-nilly forgive, sweep it under the carpet, uh, pretend it didn't happen, uh, you know, just, just say, you know, let bygones be bygones. I know you sinned against me, but you know, I'll just forget about that. Oh, no, he would not be, what word do I need next? He would not be holy. He would not be God. He would, he would not be true to himself to do that. We, God would no longer be God. I just think of the implications of that. Were he to overlook the stated consequences of our sin that deserve our judgment by overlooking that? Oh, he cannot do that. But what he can do is the amazing, gracious work of redemption in Christ. So he sends his son to be the one who substitutes himself for us, paying the penalty for our sin. 
so that by faith we might be forgiven, right? Forgiveness of our trespasses based upon the redemption accomplished in Christ. It can come no other way. This is why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way this can be done? And he knows the answer from the Father. No, this is it. There's no plan B. If people are going to be saved, it's through what you do in taking the cup of divine wrath. You know, let this cup pass from me. You see this in Isaiah 51. You see this in Jeremiah 25. This cup of divine wrath. There's no other way. He has to bear it. He has to be the one who pays the penalty we deserve to pay. And by that offers to us then full forgiveness as we work to attain it, right? No. As we recognize we can do nothing to attain it, but just receive by grace through faith the finished, complete work of Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. I think a lot of people don't come to faith in Christ because they want to be able to say, I did it, right? I accomplished it. I, my good works, my, my efforts uh, were enough. Well, I, I am sorry, my friend. They will never be enough. There is no world in which they would ever be enough. The only one who has satisfied the fullness of the weight of God's judgment against our sin is His Son, who redeemed us, paid the penalty to buy us out of that marketplace of guilt and sin that we could receive freely just by faith in Him. It's what Christ has done, not me. Isn't that amazing? So just, you have one more word on redemption, just because I think some, some people are confused by this. When you think of the Old Testament, you think, well, hasn't God been doing redemption all along? Isn't that what the Old Testament sacrifices were? I mean, a, a payment, a substitutionary payment for the sin that Jewish people would commit, and they'd offer a sacrifice, and they would take it to the priest, and he would offer it. So, I mean, goodness, it seemed like that was working. I mean, that was paying for sin. They were being forgiven. They were being justified. So why, why not just continue that practice? Well, number one is, uh, it would have to continue forever then, right? Because it only paid for sins at the moment. But here's the main thing. Here's the main thing. It is not the case that those sacrifices in the Old Testament ever actually did pay for any sin at all. Let me say it again. It is not the case that those sacrifices in the Old Testament actually paid for any sin at all. Hebrews 10, verse 4, mark it down. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So, what was the point of those sacrifices? Not that they would be in themselves atoning sacrifices, but rather that they would point to a future day when Christ would come and make the payment that was provided for them early, prematurely, right? That, that uh, Christ would make the payment that would satisfy then the sin that they had committed, that, who, the, whose forgiveness would offer to them early. So here's how I think about those sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's, it's an analogy that I think works pretty well. It's like the sins are forgiven on credit, right? So when you go to a store, as almost all of us do these days and use a credit card. When's the last time you use cash? You know, so you go to a store, use a credit card. Well, how much do you pay for that shirt, that pair of pants that you walk out of the store with? How much do you pay for it right then? The answer is zero, right? So why doesn't the guard at the door stop you from stealing on the way out if you haven't paid anything for it? Well, it's because you have signed, or, you know, implicitly, it used to be you actually did that, you know, you signed a slip. You, you signed a, a, a legal agreement by which you pledge yourself to a future payment, right? So here's what, ha in which case, if you don't make that payment, you did steal it. Okay, so here is what God did in the Old Testament. The Father, in every single sacrifice that was offered, signed the credit card slip and said, I will make this payment in the future through the work of my son. 
So he passed over sins previously committed, this is in Romans 3, in order that he might demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, right through Christ, show that he's righteous in forgiving sin because now the payment has been made. So apart from Christ, there is no salvation. This is what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You say, well, that's awfully narrow. Yeah, but you know what? A narrow gate is a gate. Huh. There is one. Only one. But it works. It provides all that we need for our salvation in Christ, for our forgiveness of sins. So indeed, the glorious accomplishment of our salvation is through the Son. Then last, the gracious application of our salvation comes through the Spirit. And for this, we we see primarily verses 13 and 14. Again, I mentioned in verse 3, there's a hint of this, right? Spiritual blessings, that is, blessings mediated to us by the Spirit, bringing us into Christ, who has accomplished everything. But it becomes explicit in verses 13 and 14. So in Christ, we read, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, before we launch into the, the, the Spirit here in a couple of ways that I want us to see, just notice something important also in the way Paul thinks about how we receive salvation. Verse 13, in Christ you also, notice, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. So for Paul, it is crystal clear that people must hear the gospel and believe the gospel to be saved. Isn't that the way you read this also, right? Having listened to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, then they are saved, right? So, you know, there is this view out there, it's called inclusivism, at least that's what many people label it as, that holds the view that people can be saved around the world without any knowledge of Christ or any knowledge of the gospel. They just know the God of creation, and that's sufficient to be saved. Well, you know, it's just a deadly error because it encourages people to stay home and not go out as missionaries. Oh, they're, they're going to be fine after all. But it's just so wrong and, and deadly in its implications and impact that this has. No, the truth of the Uh, of of this passage and many others indicate that the only way that people can be saved is as they know the truth of Jesus. They know the gospel of Christ. I mean, think for example in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But how shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe unless they hear? How shall they hear unless someone Preach. How should they preach unless they are sent? You hear it? The logic of that? We must send missionaries. Those missionaries must go and proclaim the gospel. People must hear the gospel to believe and be saved. Let us not waffle on this. We cannot abide this wrong view that just sounds better to our sentiments. Right? Oh, I think everybody's going to be okay. Oh, no, my friends. There are 2 billion people at a very conservative estimate today in 2024 who have no access to any gospel understanding at all. And, and so there, there is such a need for missions, such a need for people to go and bring the good news. Maybe God is touching one of your hearts right now. And you realize you want to be one of those beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tinies? Do you have beautiful feet? Use them. Go. (laughs) Share that gospel elsewhere. Okay, back to verse 13. So after listening, after believing in the gospel, here's what happens. You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the first thing that Paul emphasizes in verse 13 is the sealing that takes place where? 
in Christ. So we are in Christ people and Christ is in us. Both of those realities are true. But this one emphasizes the fact that we are in Christ. We are put in Him. I mean, when someone is baptized, right? You, you picture them going under the water and back out of the water. What is that symbolizing? They're united with Christ in His death to sin and His resurrection to newness of life. We are in Christ the moment we put our faith in Christ because the Spirit puts us into Christ. Isn't that something? And, so, and nothing can change that. If you truly are a believer, you are in a relationship with Christ that is indissoluble, unchangeable, that, that will only result in your conformity more and more to the likeness of Christ until the end when you're glorified and you're made like Him in the end. So indeed, the Spirit seals us in Christ. It's a word in Greek that, that is oftentimes used of a seal that was put on a letter by a king or some official and indicating <laughs> this is an unbroken thing. You, if you break that, it's to the threat of death, right? Or a seal that was put, put on a tomb, something like that. So these seals indicate the permanence of what is done. So sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You might think, well, you could break a seal on a letter, you could break a seal on a tomb, but this is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Guess what? He's omnipotent. You can't break this seal. It's impossible to break this seal. So you're in because the Spirit puts you there and holds you there. But then, verse 14, the Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So here is a different way in which we understand the coming of the Spirit. He is given to us, the Spirit given to us, as a token or a pledge or a promise of the fullness that is going to come. It's kind of like an engagement ring, kind of like that, right? Where a, a young man will give to a young woman a ring that, that promises to her himself in marriage at a particular point in the future. So that promise indicates a reality, a future reality that is assured. Now we all know human agreements of any kind, including proposals to marriage and, and rings given and so on, can always be broken. Sadly, they sometimes are. And there's great disappointment oftentimes when that happens. But in, an, in any case, this particular <laughs> um, pledging of our inheritance, this particular pledge is one that God makes by giving us His Spirit, right? And because God makes it, and He cannot fail in accomplishing His purposes. He always is true to His promises. This one cannot fail. We are His. We, so this is a token, a pledge, a promise that God gives of all that He has for us in Christ with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. There, I think, he's thinking future, the fullness of what God, what Christ has redeemed us to receive. The fullness of that is yet to come, and we're sealed in Christ and receive the Spirit as a pledge, knowing the fullness is ours. This inheritance, Paul mentions, it. look at in verse 14, who is a pledge of our inheritance. He mentions inheritance three times. In Ephesians 1. It is a big deal. He mentions it in verse 11, in verse 14, and again in verse 18. This inheritance is a big deal, which indicates all the riches, the fullness of Christ, which will never end forever and ever. Incredible, isn't it? So just by way of illustration, uh, Jody, my, my wife sitting over here, she's going to be embarrassed. I'm sorry, honey, but you, I, I'm just going to talk about you. So here you go. Um, she has come up with many good ideas over the years. And uh, one of them was, I remember when we first started taking vacations out to the West Coast, I taught at Bethel in Minnesota, Trinity in Illinois, Southern in Louisville, Kentucky, and all of our families are in Washington, Oregon, and California. So lots of trips west. You know, we got to know that countryside really well. So on one of the early trips, it may have been the, actually the first one, I don't know, but Jody said to me when I was planning to pack the trunk of the car with our luggage for a vacation uh, out to see everybody, she said, save, she handed me a box, she said, save room for this box in the trunk. 
So I put this empty box in there, not knowing what the purpose of it was. But she just said, I need room for this box. So I made sure that there was room for it and where she could get access to it. Well, so the idea was, it was such a good idea that she had uh, purchased and wrapped up presents for each of our two girls for each day that we traveled. So they could open a present in the car as we're driving off. Now, I'm the dad, right? So I established the rule, we have to drive 100 miles first, you know, before you can open your present. So they're holding it in their lap going, Daddy, is it 100 miles yet? Nope, 59, sorry, you know, can't, can't do it yet. So anyway, 100 miles would come, they'd unwrap the present. I mean, just little things like, you know, a little puzzle to do in the car or a pad of paper and pens or, you know, just little things. But oh my, they just loved that, you know, and couldn't wait to open the present. And so she had presents for all the days out and all the days back that we would travel. But you know what? When we got back, the box was empty. Okay, here's the difference with God. The box will never, (laughs) for all of eternity, never be empty. He, He has planned for us, His children, an endless display of His goodness and kindness of his generosity toward his people forever. How do you do that? And the answer is, you have to be God. You have to be God to do that. You have to be God to create the universe. You have to be God to send his son to the Christ. You have to be God to prepare all this for us. And the Holy Spirit is given as God's pledge. You get it all eventually. What an amazing thing. So the grand architect of our salvation is the Father, the gracious application of salvation uh, through the Son, and then the, the, I'm sorry, glorious accomplishment, and then the gracious application of of our salvation is through the Spirit. So a few points of application, and we'll bring this to an end. First, marvel at the beauty of the triune God and of the salvation that He has accomplished. Does Does this not just enhance your wonder and awe and amazement at your salvation to see the work of the Father, to see the work of the Son, to see the work of the Spirit in applying that to our lives. And so just, you know, the the doctrine of the Trinity enlarges our scope of wonder and awe of who God is. And that itself is an application point. You might wonder why. Well, if you were here in the Sunday school session, you remember... To know the truth is one thing, to feel the weight, to see the beauty and the glory of the truth is another thing. And that's what stirs our affections, and that, that's what leads us to have new desires, new want-tos. Uh, and, and so, indeed, it moves us to want to honor this God and to please Him and to live in obedience because we see what a glorious God that He is. Second application point, consider the work of the triune persons as one of rich harmony, not simple unison, one in which there is a unity of work without sameness and a diversity of roles without discord. So, the, the, you know, the word, the, the concept of harmony, which is a musical idea, right, is just such a beautiful expression of the way the Trinitarian persons work because there is a unity that is not unison. What is unison? We all sing the same line of notes, right? Which we typically do in, in morning, you know, worship singing, which is fine. I mean, it's fine to sing unison, but, but here is a work of the Trinitarian persons that is not unison. They don't all sing the same line of notes, but it's also a distinction in what they sing that is not discord. What's discord? I'll tell you what it is. It's three three-year-olds sitting on the same piano bench. I mean, you just can't beat it for an image, right? Three three-year-olds sitting on the same piano bench. That's discord. There is nothing about that that is unified, right? So you have a unity that is not unison, a distinction that is not discord. What is that? Harmony, right? Where you sing different lines of notes, but each of those is composed in a way that it enhances the beauty, supports the, the wonder of the, of the melody line and helps you sing with greater texture and beauty. So here, here's how the Trinitarian persons work. And I would argue that really it's the father who writes the composition, right? He's the architect. But he gives the melody line to his son. Isn't that something? 
He says, I want my son to be front and center in all of this. I want, you know, every knee will bow, even though the Father designed it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice, though, but to the glory of God the Father in Philippians 2. Why to the glory of God the Father? Because everything the Son did, He did as the Father sent Him to do. He did the will of His Father all the way through. So indeed, the, 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 the Father designs His Son to sing the melody line. And the, really the Father and the Spirit both sing supporting lines, as it were, to the Son Himself. So think of the Trinitarian person's work as one of rich harmony. And realize that's how we should work too in our families, in our churches, where there is a unity that is not unison. We all don't do the same thing. Think of the gifting in the body of Christ that's different, right? It's a unity that is not unison, but it also is a distinction that better not be discord, right? <sighs> families, kids fighting all the time, disagreeing with their parents, and just, you know, all this mess. No, that's not the kind of of distinction there should be. It's a distinction that is not discord, but one of harmony, working together in churches and in homes, so it should be. And then finally, last point, Kepler C, understand the intrinsic authority submission structure within the Trinitarian relations of, of the very Trinitarian persons themselves and embrace the relevance to human life made in God's image. Authority and submission in relationships of husbands and wives, church leaders and church members, and on it goes. So you really see in the Trinity then, the Father has the highest authority in the Trinity. The Son always does the will of the Father. You never see anywhere in the Bible where the Son commands and the Father uh, goes. You know, the, 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 the Son wills and the Father carries out the will of the Son. Find it for me. I dare you. <laughs> you know, it's just not there, right? So the Father has this place of highest authority. The Son always does the will of the Father. The Spirit supports the Son in accomplishing the will of the Father. And so you see in the Trinity an authority submission structure that then is reflected in how God creates us with authority and submission that represents who God is. Isn't that an incredible thing, a beautiful thing? to see and embrace. So don't chafe at authority and submission. Yes, chafe at misuses of authority and submission, absolutely. But don't chafe at authority and submission. Embrace them in the way they ought to be exercised as we see in God himself. And so live that out in a way that honors him and brings greater fullness to our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of this time together in looking at this marvelous passage of Scripture, this depiction, this picture of you, who you are as the one God who is three. Help us to honor you and worship you in greater measure and long to live our lives to your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.